The second reading this morning comes from the book of Acts. If you were in Matt Taylor's class, you will know that the book of Acts is not from the Old Testament, but rather from the New Testament. The second half of Luke's gospel, as some refer to it. And this is one of the most important stories, I think, for the early church, as the church is surprised by who is called into its fellowship. Peter is called to the house of a Gentile, the house of a soldier, to uh, offer the gospel and to baptize the recipient of the gospel. And in characteristic fashion for the early church, what follows next is, of course, a sermon. So hear now these words from the book of Acts to the church this day. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did in both Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Chestertown, Maryland 
November 24, 1931. Special dispatch to the Baltimore Sun. A mob of 500 persons, among whom were some of the most prominent residents of Kent, Queen Anne's, and Cecil counties, stormed the Kent County Jail here tonight in an attempt to wreak vengeance upon George Davis, a 28-year-old Negro, arrested today in Wilmington for an alleged attempt to attack Mrs. Elizabeth Lusby, who lives in the vicinity of Kennedysville, early Saturday morning. Stephen R. Collins, state's attorney of Kent County, mounted the steps of the courthouse and appealed to the mob that thronged the courthouse yard to allow the law to take its course and promised that every effort would be made to bring the Negro to a speedy trial. Officials refused to say where Davis was being held. Just a week or so later, Matthew Williams was dragged into the public square in Salisbury, Maryland, where he was lynched and burned under electric lights by a citizenry claiming that, quote, there is no race feeling here, the feeling is against the sun papers and outside interference. The Chicago Tribune reporting on the matter said otherwise. A lighted Christmas tree stands on the courthouse lawn near the oak from which Williams dangled on December the 4th, the paper said, but there is more hate than goodwill prevalent in the community. Such was the culture of Maryland, our Maryland, when Brown Memorial Church installed the window here behind me earlier in April of that same year. I have never thought of stained glass windows as particularly prophetic but it seems to me that the good people of Brown must have thought otherwise. On the cover of your bulletin are several close-up photos that I took of that window this week. And let me read to you from the dedication brochure on April 26th, 1931. The large group of figures in the foreground illustrates types of humanity and exemplifies the love of God for all mankind through Jesus Christ. Beginning with the left-hand lancet, this group of figures represents a king, a figure representing the yellow race, a lame man, the apostle St. John, the prophet Moses, a widow and her child, an orphan, a figure representing the brown race, St. Stephen the Martyr, St. Augustine, one of the Latin fathers, a blind man, a figure representing the black race, and a crusader. Now, of course, this is not the way we would speak of people of various races or people with disabilities today, and I would hope that it is not the kind of detail that we would install in any window. At its worst, it bespeaks of a kind of tokenism. Three non-white characters amidst other figures, presumably white figures, including Jesus himself. If we had the money, I would love to copy the skin color of one of the people of color and apply it to the faces of Jesus and Moses, 
characters from the Middle East, and Augustine, who was, after all, an African bishop, for a more historically accurate rendering, decentering whiteness in the process. And yet, even with these problems, the specificity of these figures in terms of race, disability, and class must have been as important to the congregation in 1931 as it is today. When we say that Christ brings all people together into community, we mean all people, including those people being lynched in the public square. It is a concreteness that guards against the everybody's welcome reflexive mantra that is easy for any community to throw around as long as it means everybody like us. That specificity is rooted firmly in some of the earliest theological convictions expressed in the church's earliest history and vision. That when it comes to the Christian community, God shows no partiality, or God plays no favorites. There are not some who are better Christians and others who are lesser Christians, not in terms of our relationship to Christ. The Spirit blows where it will. The Spirit calls who it will. The Spirit saves who it will. Such a conviction was as difficult for the early church to accept as it was in 1931, as it is today. The church started among all Jewish followers. Most of the earliest Christians assumed that to be part of the church, you needed to first be Jewish. And if you weren't Jewish, Jewish you had to become Jewish first. Even Jesus himself had once proclaimed that he was sent only to the house of Israel. And then the Spirit started testing the church's tolerance for having its boundaries expanded. An Ethiopian eunuch wanted to be baptized. Saul, the great persecutor of the church, was converted by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And now Cornelius, a Gentile and soldier who saw a vision and wanted to know Jesus for himself. It would take the church a very long time to sort through this Gentile question. In many ways, it would consume the church's energy for the first hundred years of its existence. Much of the New Testament is actually testimony to that struggle. That struggle, to me, is the important thing in the life of the church, since it is likely that the Spirit will always be challenging us to a greater inclusion. That's the message that I get from the book of Acts. The Spirit descends at Pentecost and suddenly Jewish people from different nations and cultures can begin to hear each other in their own languages. The Spirit pushes Peter to catch up to an Ethiopian eunuch and suddenly the outsider becomes the insider. The Spirit knocks Saul off of his horse and suddenly the church gets knocked off its own high horse of thinking it gets to decide who is worthy to receive God's grace and who should be judge of one over the other. The Spirit will challenge all the major distinctions of biblical times, male and female, 
Jew and Gentile, slave and free, sinner and the so-called righteous. And the Spirit doesn't stop there. All through the church's history, the Spirit challenges our partiality toward particular cultures or particular races. Partiality that we know in retrospect is always part of our own prejudices. The Spirit challenges our allegiances to political parties, football teams, and nationhood itself when those allegiances become more defining for us than God's saving grace in our lives. The Spirit challenges sexual norms that are so often created to preserve patriarchy itself. The Spirit always seems to be in the disruption business, and the church is called to catch up to what God is doing in our midst. And when we do that, the book of Acts testifies, when we do that, we become witnesses to God's activity, and the church itself testifies to the radical leveling power of God's grace where all the major divisions that we create fall before us and we see ourselves as God created us. Children of God, no better than another in terms of our inherent value before God. This is the significance of saying that Jesus is Lord. It is not a battering ram to be used against those who are not Christian. It is not a we're better than you slogan to be shouted as if we are fans in a stadium wagging our we're number one foam fingers in the face of an enemy that we are trying to destroy. It is the core conviction that we believe we have one judge who is over us, Jesus the Jew. Jesus, the crucified one. And that one judge is the person who offers us forgiveness, which is the thing that is required if we want to have a full relationship with God. Honestly, I'm not so sure that even those of us who hang rainbow flags over our doorposts are really ready for the implications of that teaching. Not in this time when politics seems to have claimed more of our allegiance than our faith in the Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord means that anyone the Spirit has called is a sibling of mine and yours, then the church fails when we do not find ways to reach each other across our various divisions. Not only have we failed to reach each other, but many of us have decided it's not even worth trying anymore. It seems to be enough to condemn this kind of Christian or that kind of Christian on Facebook so I don't have to challenge them face to face in the public square. I'm as guilty as anyone. And yet Peter's story and our own history seems to show that the narratives that we continue to create about each other, about people of a particular politics, or people of a particular race, or people of a particular nationality, or gender expression, or disability, or class, or educational background, these stories are so often barriers 
that keep us from actually engaging each other. These stories become kinds of lies that we tell ourselves to convince us that our judgment against others is correct. People we don't even know and haven't even bothered to get to know. And that may be the biggest lesson of the Cornelius story for the church. Be careful when you decide that a particular kind of person is beyond the pale and not worthy of relationship. Those are exactly the kinds of people that the spirit is likely to shake up and you with it. Forgiveness, after all, is God's way of saying, I'm not through with you yet. And if God doesn't give up on particular people, who are we to think that we can? I realize that we are at a time in our history where this kind of conviction is offensive to people on both the right and the left, but it also might be what is exactly needed. We will never be able to address the injustices of poverty or the horrors of war or the systemic inequalities created by racism and sexism without some kind of cooperation with people we don't like. We will always slip back toward the failure of war, which is always taken, engaged for righteous causes, and yet almost always leaves us with deeper wounds than the ones that led us to conflicts in the first place. And more locally, our city won't get a functioning politics, a more humane police department, or safer streets without connection across divisions that so many of us treat as uncrossable. And even in our congregation, our ability to function and thrive will always be proportional to the depth of relationships that we have created and that we sustain with each other. We Americans are locked in political combat and focused on President Trump, writes Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudun in Thursday's New York Times. But there is a larger cancer gnawing at the nation that predates Trump and is larger than him. Suicides are at their highest rate since World War II. One child in seven is living with a parent suffering from substance abuse. A baby is born every 15 minutes after prenatal exposure to opioids. We have deep structural problems, they write, that have been a half century in the making under both political parties that are often transmitted from generation to generation. It seems to me that this is where the church has been sent. With a baptism that says we know God because of what we have seen in Jesus, the healer, the forgiver, the one who comes to be in solidarity with the suffering and calls people across all of our human-made boundaries to extend the same grace and forgiveness, striving for the same justice that Jesus extended to us. Peter 
let the Spirit lead him across a boundary that he was taught never to cross. A boundary that was at the time reasonable, historical, and safe for everyone involved. And yet he crossed it to find out that on the other side of that boundary was just another redeemed sinner. Just another human being in need of God's grace. He crossed that boundary against wisdom and against the counsel of the church itself. And I wonder if we are willing to do the same. 